Hello, welcome to this BMJ podcast about well-being, sponsored by Medical Protection. I'm Abby Rimmer, careers editor at the BMJ, with an interest in doctors' well-being. And I'm Kat Chatfield, a trained GP with an interest in quality and patient safety. Abby and I co-lead the BMJ's campaign on well-being, which is critically important for healthcare professionals during this COVID-19 pandemic and beyond. Today we're talking about the effect the pandemic may have had on the way that doctors view their careers. So Abby, how do you think doctors are going to be feeling about their chosen career as we move to the next phase of COVID-19? It's a really good question. I imagine that there are a lot of people who are quite tired. I imagine there are people who've seen the way that they work change quite drastically over the course of the pandemic. I'm thinking of GPs who might have moved to seeing the majority of their patients face-to-face, now seeing them um, remotely first. Uh, you know, also just changes to the way that maybe your job works in terms of if you work in a hospital, your patients haven't had visitors for a year or so, and that might have changed the dynamics. So I wonder whether people will be taking a step back and going, mm, is this the job I signed up for? Is it going to change back to how it was? So there might be lots of questions. Absolutely. And I think there's going to be a huge amount of uncertainty, isn't there? Like Nobody knows what, what the recovery is going to look like. like. We've got a huge backlog of things to deal with. We've got kind of concerns about what might happen to the vaccination programme with new variants coming. So there's just a lot of a lot of unknowns. And as you said, people are, are really, really tired. Um, so in some ways, this is a good moment to sort of stop and reflect and, and think consciously about where people are going and what they want to do. We're really pleased to welcome onto the podcast someone who has a lot of experience of talking to doctors about their careers and maybe reassessing where they want to go. So Claire, would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, hi, thanks for having me on. Um, my name's Claire Kay. I'm an executive coach uh, specialising in career development and I'm also a former portfolio GP. Fantastic. So I guess my first question for you, Claire, is whether you think having been through the year or so of the pandemic, there might be some doctors who are now kind of taking a step back and looking at their careers and maybe rethinking what they want to do. Do you think that's something that could be happening? Yes, absolutely. So I do a lot of seminars and podcasts and interact a lot of with doctors all the time in lots of different forums. And actually, it's really fascinating what people are going through at the moment. There's a huge amount of people, both in primary and secondary care, who are exhausted. They feel devalued. A lot of people are feeling anxious. A lot of feel it, people are actually feeling bored, which is a funny one. But actually, you know, there's a lot of COVID, COVID, COVID and all that sort of diagnostic skills that people were really enjoying seems to be different. And I think you mentioned in your introduction about that interaction with people and their relatives, which has all changed. So there's a lot of change and there's a lot of uncertainty. And there are some people who are actually managing to embrace that and flourish. But there are a huge cohort of people who are feeling exhausted and and feeling like something and a lot of people are actually feeling trapped and I think that feeds into um what people are starting to do which is starting to think well, what what is this do I want this do I want something else what do I need to do to understand what I want and so that word reflection is really key at the moment and often feels a bit like well I'm too busy to reflect so I just won't <laughs> I'll just carry on and just hope that it will get better and I think a lot of people are just brushing it under the carpet understandably um But what I'm seeing is actually when people do take little pockets of time to reflect, actually, it makes huge changes. And that doesn't mean that they have to change everything. 
actually it might be that they just change their mindset and actually fall back in love with what they're doing and see it differently. Or it might be that they just need to make a few tweaks, or it might be that they actually do need to do something completely different and really look at all sorts of things that are actually motivating them and what demotivates them, which we can come on to later. But actually, I think it's a real, really important time to reflect. And I always say to people that, you know, we'll go through maybe some questions that you can ask yourself to reflect, but actually it doesn't need to be this big thing where you sit there for an hour and think, oh gosh, you know, now I'm reflecting. It actually can be like, I'm in the car, I'm on my way to work, or right, the kids are asleep, I've got five minutes, go. And actually, or I'm in the shower, and you can ask yourself a tiny little question, and actually that's the bit that can start to help you work out what next. I'm obviously completely desperate to know, Claire, what is this question that you should be asking yourself? <laughs> well, um, do you know what? There's lots of questions, Kat. There's lots of questions, but there's some really key ones. And I think there's this guy called John Lees, who's a career strategist, not a, not a medic. And um, <clears throat> he has come up with a great question, which I just really love. And I think it's a really good starting point to work out just where you are at. And and the question is, how happy are you at work? And then there's a choice of answers. So his answers are, you know, great job, brilliant, yeah, loving it, just the best, like, fantastic. Or the next answer down might be, yeah, thumbs up, pretty happy, pretty happy where I'm at, it's, you know, pretty good. The next one is mustn't grumble. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, all right, not, not, not brilliant, but it'll do. Um, you know, it's got advantages. Um, it's around the corner or whatever it is. Or it does what I need it to do. And then it's like, mm, someone's got to do it. So it's, you can start to feel you're a bit flatter already. It's like, oh, well, I, you know, I've got the qualifications. Someone's got to do this role. Might as well. And then it's that sort of awful feeling of clock watching where you get to work and you think, you know what? Gosh, it's only 10 past 10 and I've got this many hours left. Etc. So I think that's a really good starting point to work out if you need to do any of this. And if you're in the great job thumbs up, you probably not, it's not so urgent. If you're kind of in the mustn't grumble or you know, someone's got to do it or the clock watching category, I would say that this is something that's actually quite important and actually a priority. And in all of this, it's really important that people start to get to this grips of it's not just prioritizing it's your well-being but part of your well-being is your career because actually so much of your time is spent at work so actually taking a little bit of time just to start with that question is a really good starting point it's really interesting to hear you go through those kind of different job stages because I feel like I've had all of those jobs in my life and felt that at different yeah. stages but I wonder what can you do you know if you are in that kind of mustn't grumble or I'm watching the clock phase but you like all of us I think do feel like well I have to have a job so I feel a bit trapped and I don't know what to do next especially I imagine if you're on a training pathway and you think well this is only six months of this and then I'm moving on or three months or however long it is what should people do if they're feeling that way well, gosh, that, there's so many different facets to that question. And I think probably, Sorry. I, no, that's fine. Um, I just, I'm just, there's so much I want to say. So I think the first thing is that, so I have a framework, which is the three R's, because I'm a simple minded person. So I like to keep it simple. So um, the first R is reflect. The second R is reinvent. And the third R is, is rebuild. So the first bit is the reflect bit, which I'll answer your question in a second. And the second bit is the fun bit, which is the, if I had a magic wand, you know, and I was, you know, a fairy godmother came to visit me, what, what would good look like? And that's like the fun bit without all the realistic stuff like money and training programs and all the rest of it. And then the rebuild bit 
is the practical bit. What can I do? What can't I do? How can I meet in the middle? And that's the concept of also the third solution, which I love, which is I don't always have to compromise. Perhaps there's a different solution that I haven't actually identified yet. So I suppose the first bit is still that reflect bit, which is actually to think about actually the, the first, the last time, I love this bit, but it's the last time that you had a great day at work or something really good happened at work where you came back from work and you rang someone on the way home or you told your partner, God, this happened. And it might just be something as simple as, I don't know, like a, a patient saying thank you. Or it might be, you know, you presented a policy and everyone said, oh yeah, that was a really good piece of work. Or it might be that actually you remembered something that you learned on a course and you instigated it in some patient care, anything. But something where you just went, do you know what, that five minutes or that hour or that three hours was brilliant. So starting to understand that and then starting to understand why it was brilliant. So was it the patient contact? Was it the fact that actually you really enjoyed the learning? And by actually dissecting it, then you can start to understand the bits of your role that actually really motivate you, fire you up, make you feel, yes, I love that. And then conversely, what's really useful is to start about thinking about the things that actually drain you. So when you come home from when you work, you think, oh, I feel awful, it was terrible. And, but thinking, well, what, what was it about today that was awful? Was it my busyness? Was it the pressure? Was it the responsibility? Was it the fact that actually I couldn't provide the care that I wanted to provide? Was it the fact that I did a piece of work and it just wasn't up to standard or my standard because I didn't have the time to do it? What was it? And then once you start to know what are the sort of motivators and the demotivators, one of the most simple tweaks that you can do is start to do more of the things that motivate you, fire you up, less of the things that demotivate you and start to understand that when you are doing something that demotivates you, like you have to, like you were saying, you know, I might just have to do this job for three months, but then that's where mindset comes in. So it might be, okay, I've got to do this job for three months. How can I approach this differently? What areas am I finding hard? What do I need in this job to actually make it more manageable? Who do I need to approach to help me with this? What things am I doing that actually are actually making this a bit harder? What could I do that might make it a bit easier? When have I been in situations like this before? And what have I put in place that helped me then? And almost just by starting there, loving the bits that you fire you up and make you feel brilliant, recognizing the bits that don't, doing less of the bits that you don't like so much, if possible, and if you can't, changing the way you approach it, suddenly that trap feeling starts to dissipate because suddenly you have choice. And choice is one of the most powerful things in careers. Thank you, Clara. It's just when, when I feel like when I ask you about the one question, there's just so many powerful questions that you just yeah. outlined. I think it's obviously a sort of, you know, quite a long process of discovery. Um, even if you do do it in five minute sections, there's a lot, a lot to dig into there. Well, there is and there isn't. I think it can be made really manageable because I think it, you're right. It does feel a little bit overwhelming. But you could say, if you said, right, every day this week, I'm going to take five minutes. And your first question might be five minutes on how happy am I at work? That will literally take you, no, wait, it'll take you five minutes. You'll, be, you'll know. I'm sure both of you know where you're at. <laughs> I'm really lucky. I'm kind of a great job. I love what I do. But, you know, I've been in the other bits as well. So that takes, what, that took 30 seconds. And then you could say, the next day you could say when did I have a great day at work well that's 
probably going to take you no more than five minutes <clears throat> to work out what it is that fired you up. And then the next day you could say, well, when did I have a challenging, less difficult day at work? What was, what was it about it? Another five minutes. So that's taken 15 minutes over three days. And then you can start to say, okay, where's my responsibility in this? And that might take a little bit longer. I agree with that. But actually, you could just ask yourself that one question a day. So probably, really, actually, it's not as hard as it feels. It's probably much more manageable if we want it to be. Obviously, it could be, you know, my coaching, I can spend hours and hours and hours with people dissecting it all. But actually, lots of people are able to do this on their own. Or to talk to a friend about it and do it in a buddy system as well. That's also quite fun. You make it sound really straightforward, which is amazing, you know, with, with the three R's. Um, but I think often I find that even when I try and do this work, I get stuck really quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I end up thinking, but I don't know what I want or what I need to do to get there. So, you know, do you have any advice about, about that? Yeah, I I think you're not alone. I think most people, in fact, everybody has these feelings and um, they are basically blocks. They're things that stop you. And um, again, John Lee's the career strategist. He has come up with a common block that we all use, which is the yes, but in fact, you just did it then, which was, (laughs) yes, but I, you know, I can't do that because I'm not good enough. Yes, but I can't do that. I don't have time. Yes, but I can't do that. Um, the answer I came up with wouldn't be right anyway. Yes, but I can't do it because I haven't got money. Yes, but I can't do it because the kids need me. Yes, but yes, but yes, but yes, but. So I think that if you change the yes, but that we all do all the time, which is the kind of the big thing that says, well, yes, but I can't do all this. This all sounds great, but actually I haven't got to, I can't do the reflection. I wouldn't know what the answers were, blah, blah, blah. You change those two yes, but words to what if. So what if I did make the time? What if I did reflect? What if I could find a way forwards? What if I could figure out a solution for the kids? What if I actually do want to make a change? And just by noticing when we put a block in our own way, like that inner critic going, no, not today, thank you. Um, Just by noticing when that block is coming and noticing it could be yes, but, and thinking actually, what if again it's just another tiny little trick that makes a massive difference to your mindset and to your approach to make yourself say actually I actually might need to do something different right now and if I did what could be the outcome and how would I feel about that and how that drip feed into all the other bits of my life and why would that be good this has been a great discussion so far but let's just take a minute to hear a message from our sponsor At Medical Protection, we know how challenging recent times have been for all medical practitioners. And as they work tirelessly to look after others, we wanted to help our members focus on their own physical, mental and emotional well-being. So we've partnered with ICAS International to provide a confidential one-to-one counselling service, offering support for issues such as stress, burnout, anxiety and conflict. Members can also access a wellness app to help monitor, measure and promote balanced healthy living, as well as a host of handy podcasts and webinars. Our well-being programme is just one of many reasons for doctors to choose medical protection. To find out more about membership, 
which also includes comprehensive protection, advice and risk prevention support. Visit medicalprotection.org. Now this is going to sound like a really simple question and um, I hope it doesn't sound like I've not taken on everything you said because I absolutely have. But I guess my question would be, where on the kind of level of how you feel about your job should we all aim to be? Should we all love our jobs 100% of the time? Is that achievable? Or is there somewhere slightly below that kind of a love it sometimes, the rest of the times it's good? Because I'm quite aware sometimes I really like my job and I feel quite privileged that I like my job because I'm aware lots of people do jobs that they do because they have to, not because they like them. So realistically, where should we all be aiming for? I think that's completely individual. So there'll be some people that say, do you know what? You know, I just want 30% of the time to be feeling like I love my job and the rest of it I'm happy with because I've changed my mindset that the rest of it is just, I've got to get, just get it done. That's where I'm in my life. 70% of the time, I'm not going to be loving it, but actually it does what I need it to do. But I'm going to be as proactive as I can about making it more manageable so it doesn't affect my well-being. And actually, maybe I'm not swinging on the chandeliers, but I'm actually fine. And that's good enough for me. There'll be other people that say, you know what? I'm spending five days a week, seven days a week at work. This is the biggest part of my life. This has to be good. And even if it's not good right now, I have to be heading for where I want it to be. And actually, I need it to be 80% of the time that I'm feeling fired up and loving it and 20% where it's a bit rubbish and maybe not quite what I want. So I think it's completely dependent on the person and that's totally fine. And that's, again, it comes down to choice because actually you may feel that actually, so if I give you an example. So when I was doing clinical medicine, most of the time I loved it. And when it was kind of, you know, 80% for me that I was with my patients, I just loved that and I loved the clinical bit, that that was great. And I didn't mind the 20%. It was a bit rubbish and hard and challenging and all the rest of it because that was fine. But when it started to creep the other way and when I couldn't work within my value systems, I was like, oh, hang on a minute. I really love my patients and the clinical stuff still, but actually maybe it's time to springboard into something else. And that's, I think, an important understanding. I think you've raised a brilliant point, Abby, that actually knowing what's acceptable for you and noticing when it changes is vital because when the change is happening, that's when you need to start to think, mm, have I done what I need to do here? Is it time to springboard? Is it time to take what I know and to do something else? Is it time to dovetail something in? Is it time to do more of what I love? Is it time to make a change? So actually... I think that's a brilliant question. It's not a silly question. It's a fantastic one because everybody is different and understanding where you are gives you the sort of the baseline to know what's acceptable for you and what isn't. That segues so perfectly, Claire, into what I wanted to ask you, which was, you know, if you've done this reflecting and you're at the stage where, you know, you're at the, oh, mustn't grumble or actually, no, I'm really clock watching and you've then done the work to kind of maximize the bits that you can control and you can influence to do more of what you you like and inspires you and then you've also tried to change your mindset to get what support you need for the bits that aren't so good but overall the reality is you know the situation that you're in is is mostly not working for you how do you then start to do this kind of reinvention step that you that you mentioned So I think the first thing to recognise is that it's not a failure to want something else. And that's okay. And I believe strongly that every aspect of our working lives 
lead into the next bit. And that's this concept about springboarding. I'm obsessed with springboarding because actually it's it's not a failure. So I could have been seen as I don't do clinical medicine anymore. So I could have been seen as I'm a failed doctor because I didn't don't do that anymore and I do something else. But that's not how I view it at all. Maybe I'm wrong, but this is my approach. That actually I use the skills that I learned through my 20 years of clinical medicine and have used those now in a different setting. And I have taken those, grown them, developed them, shaped them and changed them into something else. So I've springboarded my skill set into a different area. And actually doctors are particularly good at this, even though they don't know that they're doing it because they're often developing new skills. And most doctors see patients, but they also teach, do governance, do management, do leadership. You know, they've got so many different skills that are all so powerful, but most of the time they don't recognise that they have these skills. So that's part of it. And then the other part is literally just to sit there for a second, ground yourself and just say, okay, what does good look like? If I was to fast forward to five years time, what will I be doing? And then to really start to think about that. Well, in an ideal world, and you can be really practical to begin with, you might just say, in an ideal world, I'll be working four days a week. I will be home by six o'clock. I won't be working the weekends. I'll be working in a team that really inspire me. And I'll be doing something around education or research or clinical work or, you know, just give an idea. And once you have that sort of general concept, then you can start to think, okay, what are my options? Where, where What could I do? And then the, the, the question to ask yourself is what most people say, and I see this all the time in coaching, is when you say, what does good look like? And they give you an answer, and then we explore it a bit further. And then we'll talk about what they could do. They'll probably give me one or two answers. And my favorite question is, what else? Because then they often come up with like 15 other answers. They might not want to do them, but actually just by putting them all out there really helps to start to think, well, actually, that is an option, but I don't want to do it. No, thank you. I don't fancy that. And I'm, again, I've got lots of obsessions. One of my other obsessions is spider diagrams. And you draw a pic, like literally a circle with your name in the middle and then draw some spider diagrams off. So I could go and be an astronaut. I can go and be a hairstylist. I can go and be a doctor. I can go and be a whatever, just all over. And then you start to explore them and think, well, actually, those things don't fit what I'm wanting. And there are other pieces of work that I can chat about for hours about understanding your identity and purpose and blah, blah, blah. And that all feeds into this. But actually just on a simple level, just starting to do a, a simple spider diagram and think, well, where could I go? Oh, no, I don't fancy. Thank you. That might be quite good. Then. And then you tend to be left with sort of two or three options that start to to sort of shine out. And then you think, well, actually, my skill set might marry up well, quite nicely with that. And I fancy that in five years' time to be doing that. And actually does fit with my four days a week and my being home by six o'clock and being with my kids or whatever it is that you need in your good statement. So Claire I think what you were saying really resonated with me I I tend to describe myself as a lapsed GP um, which is interesting because I took a conscious step away from clinical medicine to do editing Um, but I think lapse kind of has that tinge of of failure about it Mm -hmm. and I felt I really had to explain to like my my mum and dad about you know why uh, this thing that I'd invested so much time in I wasn't going to do anymore Um, so how do you think people deal with those that sense of, of failure? Yeah, I think it's a massive thing for people. And um, I, like you, when I made a change, I was really scared about telling people and whether people were going, oh, she wasn't so good. Oh, what, what happened to her? You know, that sort of feeling. But actually, 
I didn't feel like a failure myself because I'd worked out what it is that I wanted. And also, I mean, I know it sounds like a cliche, but actually failure is the key to actual success. And it really does because all the things where things haven't gone quite right for me in my life actually have been, been the things that I've learned most from. So I think people, again, it's okay to feel, to be worried about what other people will think, but it, you'll probably be surprised by the majority of people. They'll just be interested in what you're doing next. And if there is a cohort of people that go, oh, she's given it up, <laughs> you know, which, you know, people do sometimes say, I think it's having the strength to know that you've done the work to know that where you're heading is actually where you want to be. And it's that piece about also taking what you've learned from what you were doing before and bring it into something else as opposed to giving up everything that you've learned and just having had to stop and failing. It's about springboarding. It's about taking what you know and bringing it forward. And it's, it is about courage as well because it is hard having that conversation. It's hard to speak the words, say, I'm no longer doing this and seeing the reaction. It does make people feel physically sick. But actually, it's, a, it's about... Do their, are their voices more important than yours? And if they aren't, which they shouldn't be, then does it matter? Because actually there is no shame in doing what you want because you will flourish and you will grow and that will feed into every aspect of your life and everybody else's life around you. That, that's the power. But it does take courage to understand that your voice is more important than theirs. Now, I wonder from your experience of coaching people, how much change happens that moves people completely away from medicine when you work with doctors and how much actually people, when you get them to reassess things, actually realise that there are things they can do within talking medicine, but maybe medicine than bigger than, you know, clinical practice. Is there more there available to people than sometimes they realise? hundred percent. And I think so many people come to me, like you were saying before, feeling trapped. And they don't know what they want, but they know they want something else. And they presume that they have to leave medicine to do that. And what they don't realise is that, and, and this would, I would say, for 95% of my clients, <clears throat> excuse me, they end up not leaving medicine at all, but actually introducing either other things into their career, and so creating a portfolio career, or just tweaking, just literally just recognising that actually they do really love what they do. It's just that there's some aspect of it that's more challenging. And actually, if they either put something in place to help that or change how they think about it or do less of it, actually it becomes manageable. So, But there's so many options and things that people can bring into their careers that they don't even consider because they just presume that they have to stay on the travelator, as I call it, which is where you go to primary school, you go to secondary school, you go to university, you then go become a doctor, and then you go on your training programme, and then you arrive and you think, oh, what happened? And then you see other people who seem to have got off the travelator, and that's far too scary, so you don't want to do that. But there's also a huge cohort of people that dip their toe off the travelator and then bring it back on, and then they put their foot off, and then they bring it back on, and they try things. And in fact, I was just talking to clients this week about just start. So if there's something that actually you think, you know what, I'd love to get involved in medical education or I'd love to write a policy on, but oh, but I'm not qualified enough to do it. Actually just starting, having a go, networking, speaking to people, just dip your toe off the travelator is often just enough to make you feel that you're not trapped and that there are options. So Claire, I mean, 
it's really heartening to hear you say that a lot of your clients actually you know do find a way to maximize their careers within within medicine and I'm thinking about kind of workforce and how it's so important that we have this happy and healthy and well workforce um, for organisations and for the health service and for individuals within it. Um, so, so what more can employers or training organisations do to support doctors um, in all of this to, to ensure that they are feeling that their career is rewarding and that we've got this healthy, well workforce? Mm. I think it's a change of attitude, to be honest. I think it isn't, it is important that we address people's well-being, but I think it's much more than that. People need to feel valued, they need to feel heard, and they need to feel that they've got career development, not just on the travelator, but actually it's personalised to them. And I think it's really important that a coaching culture starts to creep into the NHS. So I think it, it's, it always makes me sad, I've had a huge amount of clients recently saying to me, you know, we're in the caring profession, but I don't feel that my superiors, not I'm not talking about individuals, but just as a, a body, don't care about me. So something awful has happened in my life. I've been a really good doctor for X amount of years, but something really bad has happened now. And I need a bit of support and care and feel valued. And that's not happened. I've just been told to get on with it. And actually, that to me is completely the wrong approach because actually we're in the caring profession and we need to be held and valued, but also um, recognised as being skillful individuals who have opinions and have um, value and that actually that interprets itself into career development. So I think it's really important that people know that, say, for example, you've got um, somebody that's brilliant at policy writing, for example, and they are just expected to write policies, but nobody ever says, you know what? you are fantastic at writing policies. The way that you interpret the information and put it into this way really is helping the department. How do you feel you could take this further? What else do you want to do? Is there anything else that you can see other people doing that you'd really like to take on board? How are you finding your workload at the moment? And those conversations are starting to happen more. But I think it's people feel de devalued. They don't feel that actually their contribution is recognised they don't feel that they are cared for. Um, they don't feel that they matter. And I know last year, I think it was the BMA, BMJ did a campaign around you know, having a place to sit and have a break. You know, the fact that that isn't available is, is awful. And I think that as a workforce, you say, well, I can't even have a cup of tea when I've done a 12-hour shift. I can't go to the toilet for eight hours because I haven't got time, you know, to do that. I don't drink because there's no time. You know, all of that is not right. And that's, that's, I think, where a lot of frustration comes is that we don't, feel, we don't feel valued. And I think by changing that attitude on all levels, and I'm not talking about senior management, I'm talking about everybody saying, actually, you know what, you've, you've worked for however many hours and you don't seem to have a break. Why don't you go and have a break? Go and have a break. Go and have however long and come back when you're ready as opposed to work through, work through, keep going, keep going. Come on, come on, come on. Which actually makes you feel... I've got a question that doesn't really follow from that, so it might sound a little bit left field, Claire, but um, you might also be able to draw on your own experiences of kind of moving away from clinical medicine in, in, on this. I just wondered, given that we're constantly told that there aren't enough doctors, whether that puts an additional pressure on people who are rethinking about their careers because they then feel guilty that they might no longer want to 
work in clinical medicine or, or see patients? Guilt is a massive, massive thing. And I think just understanding that other people are feeling guilty too is a starting point. And actually giving yourself permission to explore what you need and what you want is important. And it might be that by exploring, actually, there is not even one part of you that wants to do anything else except for what you're doing or with a tweak or with a dovetail of something else into it. But actually, by not exploring that, it just builds resentment. And I would say most doctors don't want to leave their doctoring career. Most people love their patients, love the science. There's other frustrations, but most people really, well, this is from my experience, even through the exhaustion, actually just want to find a way to make it work. So I think that it's the guilt is terrifying and it's, again, easier just to shove everything under the carpet and actually just wait for it to stop. But unfortunately, what happens with that is that moral injury starts to creep in, burnout starts to creep in, and actually then people who probably wouldn't have left the profession then end up doing it. So actually, I think it's really important to sort of just own the guilt and just say, well, it's, it's hard. I do feel guilty and I don't know what I want and I don't know what I need, but maybe if I took the time, I maybe I wouldn't feel so guilty. But I think, you know, I felt, I felt guilty and for a long time I had decided that I wasn't going to do anything apart from what I was doing. But actually the turning point for me was that I was offered a top job in frailty because clinically frailty is my special interest. And I was really like, wow, I've got off for this job. I'm so excited. And then I kind of kind of had that sort of impending doom feeling, which doesn't really fit with the job that you think you want. And everyone around me was saying, yeah, take the job. It's going to be amazing. Take the job. And there was so much noise. And I just thought, well, I'm going to just obviously take the job. And then by coincidence, I had some coaching. And that's when I realised that I felt too guilty not to take the job. I should take the job. I had a duty to take the job. I could do the job and I could do it well. So what on earth was I thinking about not taking the job? And that's when I realised that I needed to give myself permission to actually do what I wanted. But that could have gone the other way. It could have been that I gave myself permission to dump the guilt and actually just enjoy what the opportunity and just to take it. But I needed that conversation. I needed to have that moment to say, what is this guilt? Where, where is where is this coming from? And that completely changed the course of what I was doing. So I would say own your guilt and just say, right, this needs to be explored. And if I'm going to leave, it's okay. And if I'm not going to leave, it's okay. And if I'm going to do something in the middle, that's okay. But guilt shouldn't be part of it. It just is, but it shouldn't be. I just reflecting on this, this all sort of I always find when we do podcasts that kind of it makes me think of all the other podcasts we've done and it sort of chimes in with you know everything that Michael West says about how there has to be compassionate leadership to really kind of understand the needs of of people in it and then I think all this sort of mindfulness to me I sort of hear these themes about it's about not just doing it but it's about taking the time to allow those feelings you know to allow the guilt and to acknowledge it and then explore it and reflect on it rather than just kind of barreling on uh, and getting to this place which might be burnout or it you know might be depression or you know a a place that's uh, you know where you haven't heeded all those all those um, all those inputs and all those sort of internal cues that are telling you actually you know what something's going on here you need to pause and, and make time for this 
so that's just a rather garbled reflection yeah. rather no, than a question. I, I think I think it's really true. I think it's really scary to actually think about it. I was speaking to somebody yesterday and they were saying, you know, they just felt too overwhelmed to even think about it. So they didn't. And then it just gets worse because it doesn't it doesn't go away. It just sits in a different place of you. And I think again it, it it feels like, well, if I'm going to have to do this big piece of work, I'd rather not do it, so I just won't. And it's what's the outcome going to be and how am I going to manage that outcome? And I'm too like under-resourced and exhausted to even make a change. So I'll just stay where I am. And that's fine to a point, but actually it just doesn't have to be overwhelming. It just doesn't. It can just be really bite-sized and it can be really simple. And something as simple, you know, you're mentioning, you know, your podcast, which I'm sure there's amazing you know, speakers that you've had, but also just there's loads of podcasts out there. And just sometimes, you know, if you're going for a run or you're on your way to work, just listening to something that talks, talks, like literally talks to you, but you know, <laughs> like speaks to you, it actually makes you think, yeah, that might be something I'd be interested in. Or mm. what, have, what have they done? Or how mm. could I have a portfolio career? Or whatever it is, starts to lift that feeling, I think, a little bit. I think that's a really great point, Claire. I'm often that person who buries their head in the sand and worries about the thing that they ought to be doing but doesn't actually get around to doing it. Mm. So I think doing things bite-sized is often really helpful. And as you said before, often it's a it's a change of mindset about how you approach the task or whatever it is that needs doing that really helps. Yeah, I think a, a lot of it is about just making things manageable because people see the change <clears throat> as terrifying. Like if somebody said to me, right, you are going to leave clinical medicine, set up your own business, do your own, I'd be like, no, 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 thank you. And that's on the background of a portfolio career, having had loads of different roles and experiences and et cetera. So, but I would have been like, no, thank you. But I didn't do any of that. I just took a tiny, tiny step, which probably took me about five or 10 minutes, sent an email. And then I saw the result of that email. And then I thought, right, well, that's not worked. So what else can I do? I'll send another email or I'll speak to this one. Or I'll speak to that one. And all the little steps were, you know, there was probably hundreds of thousands of steps, tiny, tiny ones, but they were all things that I felt I wanted to do. So I chose to do it. And they were all really easy and didn't take long and didn't feel scary. So therefore I was able to do it. I didn't put it off and think, no, 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 not today. Too busy, too awful day, whatever. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's easy, it's, it's easy to forget about it, but nice to know that actually you can make it manageable if you choose to. And Claire, you, you sort of talked about kind of accessing other resources like different podcasts and things like that. Um, so I know you've sort of done a lot of other podcasts as well. How mm. can people find you? So I'm, I'm all over the place, all over social media, but my main um, area is Instagram and I'm under Dr. Claire K underscore executive coaching. And I put lots of tips and tricks on my um, feed all the time. And also I put all my free, I do loads of seminars and podcasts and things. So I put all my free stuff on there. Um, and so there's lots of things coming up. So people are welcome just to tune in and have a look and uh, you know, do some of the free stuff and see what suits them. I feel like we learned so much from Claire. It almost felt like we had our own coaching session. I know, Abby, there was so much to think about. I really feel like I want to go back and listen to this with a notebook and a pen and pause it and sort of reflect on each of those questions as they come up. And I think it would be a really interesting, interesting journey. I was particularly interested in, in your thoughts on failure because it made me reflect on my own career and that for a long time I felt like a failure because I wasn't a 
national newspaper journalist. And when people say to you, what do you do? And you say you're a journalist, they expect you to kind of work for the Telegraph or the Sun. And it took me a long time to realise that actually I love the job that I do now and I like my colleagues and the working environment. And actually that's what's more important to me. But it did take a long time to kind of come to terms with that, I think. So I thought that aspect of the discussion was really interesting. Yeah, I I agree. And I think this it goes along so much with sort of the personality types we've talked about before that might be drawn to kind of medicine and the caring profession and, and that kind of um, perfectionist archetype or you know um feeling that you you just have to be really great at everything and and also this this word that I've mentioned before that I hate which is coping and I always felt that you know people would think oh she left medicine because she couldn't cope and that there was something really kind of shameful about that um I think it's partly about as Claire said not not valuing those other voices above your own voice you know why why are those voices so loud why is your own inner critical voice so loud um, and why can't you just say do you know what that just wasn't working for me um, or it was great when I was in my 20s and 30s but now I'm in a different place and you know my career has evolved and that's normal for most people you know staying in one narrow career box we know now for the rest of your life is is not common um so you know why shouldn't we appreciate that people's careers and roles you know will evolve as their life evolves as their life circumstances evolve as they evolve as a person you know let's let, let's look at it as this kind of positive um evolution in the springboard that claire said that everything that you do leads into somewhere else but you're still using and building on all those skills and experience that but skills and experiences that you've developed um no matter whether you then stay kind of within medicine or or branch out into a into something completely different i think that's a really nice place to finish um so thank you ever so much to claire Kay for joining us on the podcast yeah it was a really lovely discussion um check us out on social media we're at bmj underscore latest on twitter or you can join the bmj wellbeing group on facebook as always we'd really like to hear your ideas for what we should cover in future episodes until next time it's goodbye from us bye, bye.